I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. is taken from Genesis 29 verses 1 to 28. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying there beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherd would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said to him, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, son of Nahar? They said, We do. He said to them, Is it well with him? Yes, they replied. And here is his daughter Rachel coming with the sheep. He said, Look, it is still broad daylight. It is not time for the animals to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, and the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brothers, Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him 
but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as a gift. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Well, of all the Ten Commandments, adultery is probably the hardest to talk about. First of all, it's just complicated, right? It's complicated because wrapped within it is, is the problem of marriage, something with deeply religious undertones and yet also something taken seriously by many non-religious people, right? It's complicated because of the problem of sexuality. The problem of sexuality, this urge buried deep in our biology that often makes us do things we know are wrong. And it's complicated because of the problem of love, which is very real, something deeply human and spiritual, and yet something that once ignited can be so fierce that it can destroy everything in its path. The conversation about adultery is complicated. And it's, it's a hard conversation to have because it, it's, it's often traumatic and, and damaging, not just to the spouse who betrayed, but also, but also the adulterer and to the extended families and, and to the children involved who must carry the burden of one of their parents betraying the other for the rest of their lives. And, and let's not forget, it's also about sex. And sex is hard to talk about. According to, to surveys, about one in every five Americans and two in every five people around the world have extramarital affairs. And because more people will hide their affairs, we know when answering a survey, then will falsely profess infidelity, we can assume the real numbers are much higher. One in every five Americans. That is a cold, unpleasant reality, right? And so maybe partially to do with this reality, we hear talk about the collapse of marriage in modern society. 
social critics point to soaring divorce rates and premarital sex and and the growing legitimacy of alternative forms of marriage as clear indicators that something very precious is being lost here and that the core of the family is unraveling here at the anchor of, of social stability. But maybe, maybe the, collap the collapse of marriage might be just too easily blamed on modern life and its promiscuities and the glorification of sex. Maybe, for the sake of this series on the Ten Commandments, maybe those are easy scapegoats. And the real problem is that most people have failed to have a clear idea of what marriage really even is. Yes, sometimes marriages fail because of a momentary loss of control. But just as often, or perhaps even more often, I would say they fail because they have ceased to reflect a genuine and powerful bond of love between two partners and because people are far less willing to live loveless lives than they used to be. If love is there, sexual betrayal can often be overcome in fixing a marriage, right? But if it's not, then adultery is often just a match being struck in a sealed house with the gas left on. Which brings us to our scripture today. I imagine romantic love or the lack thereof is not the first thing that you usually think of when you think about scripture, or more specifically, the Old Testament. So, so it might come as a surprise to you that in ancient Israelite thinking, the most important relationship that two human beings can share is not between a prophet and a disciple or a father and his son or a king and his subject, but it is the love between two partners, two spouses on the journey of life together. And there are not a lot of love stories in the Bible, nor is, is there much discussion about the meaning of marriage in the Bible. But the few that do exist, the few love stories that do exist, are unequivocal and, and decisive in Israelite history. That, that the first generation of the Lord's people appear not as individual teachers, but, but as married couples. Abraham and Sarah... Isaac and Jacob, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rachel. Yet it is only with Jacob that the Israelite project gets off the ground. Notice each of the first two couples passes on the divine legacy, passes it on to only one of their sons. But Jacob, no, you hear it today in our scripture reading, did you? Jacob passes it on to all 12 of his sons, and the entire nation was named after the family he founded. And Jacob is the first person in the Bible to fall in love after he has a falling out with his brother Esau, Jacob's mother Rebecca sends him off east where he will stay with, with her brother Laban. And as he reaches his uncle's fields, Jacob sees Laban's daughter Rachel. 
who is tending her father's sheep. And without knowing who she is, he helps her by removing the heavy stone from the mouth of a well to, to, to water her flock. And this one redemptive deed, this one redemptive deed is, is apparently enough. No words pass between them, but they passionately embrace. And Jacob kisses Rachel and exclaims and weeps at having found the one his heart adores. As the story goes, Jacob spends the next month in his uncle's home and Laban asks him what he thinks his wages ought to be as he's working for Laban and and Jacob offers to work for seven years in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. How romantic, right? Seven years go by and Laban arranges marriage and a great celebration is held in their honor. But the next morning, it's awkward. Jacob awakens to discover that the woman in bed with him is not Rachel, but her older sister, Leah. And he loses it. Of course he would, right? But, but Laban seems completely unconcerned and unapologetic, and he just shrugs it off and says, it must not be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And Jacob discovers that to marry Rachel, he must first have Leah and then work another seven years. There are few things we come to understand from this story. So bear with me as we go through these few things. First, that love is something that explodes into our lives, right? Completely independent of marriage. In the entire Bible, no love is as powerful and as lasting as Jacob's love for Rachel. And their love is desperate, but it's also patient. He, he's willing to sacrifice a decade and a half of his life to carry the burden of marriage to a woman he, he doesn't love in order to be with the woman he does love. This love story does not disappoint. Another thing that we, we learn from this, another thing we glean from this story is just how sensitive the Bible is to, to genealogies. Over and over and over again, we hear long lists of who begat whom and and. And these lists contain some kind of moral significance. They, they suggest that our descendants' lives are deeply affected by our own behavior, that the acts of the fathers are a sign for the sons, as the, as the rabbis would have put it. Levi, the son of Jacob, acts like a zealot to protect the purity of his family and killing the people who raped his sister Dinah. And then his descendants, the Levites, go on to join with Moses and denouncing and destroying the supporters of the golden calf in Exodus, the Levites as a whole becoming the priestly class of the Israelites. And, and then in addition to that, we, we, we have Judah, another one of Jacob's sons, who, who often demonstrated deep integrity and political judgment that, that his other brothers did not have, and his descendants go on to become the ruling dynasty of the Israelite kingdoms. And, and both Levi and Judah are the children of Jacob's first wife, Leah. And the firstborn of Jacob's true love, Rachel, 
is none other than the famous Joseph, for whom Jacob makes that famous coat of many colors and who is sold into slavery by his brothers only to years later rely on his cleverness and his moral strength and boundless confidence to work his way from the dungeons of the guard to the imperial palace where he becomes second only to Pharaoh himself. All of this, from priests guarding the Ark of the Covenant to to the greatest kings of Israel's history to to a model of redemption in a technicolored dream coat, were meant to bring salvation to God's people. And and the adoptive nation of Egypt, all of this is the result of Jacob's love for Rachel. What a powerful love. Love is so important in the Bible that even when it becomes a scandal like King David's love for Bathsheba, its fruits are still incomparable to those of a marriage where love is completely absent. The Bible makes no bones about this. When love is found and is real, it can upend human order and cause us to do evil, yes, but it is also irreplaceable and a deep part of the essence of the redemptive life. As C.S. Lewis writes in, in The Four Loves, I believe that the most lawless and inordinate loves are less contrary to God's will than a self-invited and self-protective lovelessness. That'll preach. It seems self-explanatory, but it's not. The purpose of marriage is love, but, but not an abstract and personal or universal love, but this specific, consuming, focused, romantic love between human beings. Only by affirming love of this kind can we truly recognize the potential of the redemptive self who embraces one another in lifelong envelopment of body, and soul, and mind, and spirit. Such such love changes the order of the universe and makes galaxies rotate and reverse and recalls the moment of creation and brings salvation to God's people. And it defies philosophy and religion and wisdoms, ancient and new, and it ruins everything, and it fixes everything, and it fills everything with scent and taste and smell. And God has a part in it. God has a part in this kind of love. God is at work in this kind of love. For many ancient Christians and Greeks <laughs> and Buddhists, romantic love was inadequate or lowly, less than, or at times even wrong. In their view, the love of God, the highest love, was fundamentally different than this. But in the Old Testament, we don't get that. We discover actually the opposite, that that love of God can be grasped in the passionate, redemptive love between humans and loving partnership together. And so as it relates to the Ten Commandments, as we try to, to understand what God meant by you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, 
the biblical authors found themselves over and over and over again using romantic love as the central metaphor for describing the love of God. So much so that, that idolatry is often described by the prophets as a form of adultery. But the reverse is true as well. Isaiah says, as a husband rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And, it, and in Song of Songs, the Jewish mystics find the love of God in erotic sexual desire, the enjoyment of body becoming a metaphor for our relationship with the divine. The, the, the central human axis of the Old Testament is this fiery, lusty, wild, insatiable, half-animal, half-divine human love. The same love that we have in our literature and our music and our arts that have been fixated on for, for more than a century, the love we moderns cannot get out of our minds. In romantic love, we find the expansive movement of God taken to its extreme, embracing another in an act of mutual conquest. And God calls it good. But if love is the answer, why do we need marriage? After all, the seventh commandment doesn't tell us to love but to not commit adultery, which is another way of saying that we, we ought to preserve the formality of marriage and that preserving it in some sense is essential to the love the Bible is advocating for. The seventh commandment is talking about the sexual exclusivity of marriage. But why is sex so important? While we don't have these answers within scripture itself, the rabbis would have had more to say on this. In the ancient world, sex was the source of so much human suffering, of adultery and, and dishonesty and incest and prostitution and rape. It was so destructive that they understood it to be the essence of the evil inclination in us, this animalistic side of humankind taking over and trampling wis wisdom and reason and, and creativity and judgment and contemplation of the divine, just took it over like a weed. And so the rabbis, as the story goes, came up with a plan. They decided to hunt down this evil urge, and when they found it, they would put this urge in chains. And when it struggled to get out of the chains, they placed it in a sealed container, the kind we might use to store nuclear waste. And after they did, the next morning, the world, the world had changed. Everything was calm now. People walked with this new dignity and were unusually polite to one another and said their prayers and studied their texts with serene devotion but something else was not right. As the story goes, one rabbi discovered that the hens had stopped laying eggs. Soon it became clear that all the cows and all the sheep were barren as well. 
within a few months, they were alarmed to find that the trees were, were showing none of the usual signs of bearing fruit. Women stopped getting pregnant and the world was coming to an end. In, in trying to quell the source of human evil, the rabbis had undone the work of creation. Of course, there is much to be said about the dangers of sexuality. But tucked within this ancient Israelite fable is the idea that the essentials of our biology are good. Being the, the central part of the very good, the very good creation of human life as God called it. And the seventh commandment is concerned with, with the inescapable role that sex plays in love. In sexuality, we may find the most powerful and sensitive expression of mutual concern and affection and redemptive joy. In sexuality, loneliness is fully resolved. It's this mutual and spiritual and biological joy. And when we share it with someone we love, we are joining together in the most sublime and miraculous act of the created order. To be clear, that act is not procreation. It is covenant. And, and as we break it, as we fail to create covenant, we slowly break the created order for we stop mimicking the God of creation who remedies loneliness with, with passionate, zealous, all-consuming love. Adultery undermines and shatters that love. If marriage is, is a public symbol for the, the possibility of redemptive life, adultery is the public symbol of the rejection of that possibility. If marriage is, is the archetype of love, then adultery is the archetype of betrayal. Understood properly, marriage is the singular institution in our society, the only one that proclaims and establishes the possibility of complete and total love in our lives. This is why God includes this in these Ten Commandments we're studying, this blueprint for a good and a just society. And, and though marriage becomes the central metaphor here, the, the, the redemptive God is concerned with redemptive love, meaning that love requires a tireless investment in partnership and covenant. This is not a dishonoring or an um, indictment of singleness. It is a reminder for us to constantly take inventory, all of us, in partnership in a romantic sense or not, all of us take inventory. Are we lonely? Have we found spiritual and physical companionship? Is the relationship this continual source of growth for us? Does it genuinely expand us, the core of our essence, so that we share that essence with someone else? The answers to these questions are only found through, through introspection, for you questioning and asking those questions of yourself and being in conversations with others. But about what works and, and what doesn't work and to know when it's time to seek help and to take the time to, to deepen the good things and, 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 and to correct the bad. We often hear of, of, of saving our marriages 
but the question itself is often part of the problem for we should be way more worried about saving our love. I offer this to you in the name of God the Father, in the name of Christ his Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me today? God, we have uh, many times fallen prey to lies about marriage and about love and about sex. And the ten, the ten Commandments, particularly this Seventh Commandment, reminds us of what that is all about, why we enter into it. And that is because you care at your core about covenant, about making commitments with, with you and with each other, commitments that last, commitments that, that are accountable, mm-hmm. that are mutual, and that, and that you care about love, not in this ethereal way, but in this real, intimate way that we each would experience it deeply and be accountable to caring and nurturing it. And so, God, we we ask that you would search the depths of our hearts today. Are we lonely? Have we found partnership? It does not need to be marriage, romantic partnership, but we were made for covenant. We were made for accountability. Who are the people who know the, the depths of our core, of our soul? Do we have those people in our lives? For if you, God, are inherently love, our whole life is wrapped up in that call. God, we join in that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray that was about ordering our lives around this, this God of love and of covenant We join with Jesus in this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you into response to God today. Allow this time to be the way that you offer love back in a tangible form by by giving to this church, giving to the God of love and the mission of this church that, 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 that brings that love, makes it real, makes it active in the lives of others. And as you do reflect on this song, this song that is really about God's, God's, deep desire to be in love with you and for you to be in love with God.